Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History SAS session on the Irish influence on American soccer. I've been chosen to host today partly because of my surname, McCabe, but also because I'm the only one on the society board who speaks Gaelic. So, Cade Mila Falcha Liv, 100,000 welcomes to you all and to our panelists from Ireland today. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us best in two places, on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Thank you to all our members for your interest and support. Another brief word about renewals. We've had a good response uh, asking uh, for those with last, last memberships to uh, renew after the new year. Uh, so if you haven't, please check on that and renew and you can do that at our website. Executive board member, Kevin Talek Marston, put together an email that went to membership uh, earlier this week. And it's about service on our National Soccer Hall of Fame uh, committee, uh, which will be a screening and voting of some sort uh, committee uh, from the society. And then we'll have a representative uh, on one of three uh, committees, players, veterans, and builders. Some have responded already. Uh, so if you see that email, uh, please uh, respond if you're interested. And finally, we sent out another email uh, with no obligation, of course, uh, but it's for Colin Jose, a journalist and historian of the game in Canada and the U.S. who has done so much. Uh, so if you'd like to send him a virtual hug, a virtual message, uh, please uh, do so. You have till 7 uh, p.m. Uh, tonight to do that, and we'll send it to him tomorrow. And impromptu uh, announcement before we get started, uh, David Kilpatrick would like to join in and, and say something. Uh, two weeks ago tomorrow, our local soccer community, our national soccer community, um, and indeed the, the world soccer community lost someone very special. Uh, on the 27th of February in Dublin, where he was born, Des McAleenan um, left this mortal coil. Um, and uh, he touched the lives of so many of us and uh, had a great impact on this game. Um, I got to know him while he was coaching with the Red Bulls. He was there for 10 years. Um, he was uh, the type of person um, that uh, made you feel like you had a special relationship with him. And uh, as we found out 13 days ago, uh, he really had that kind of impact on, on countless people in the American soccer community. So I think especially given the, the topic today, um, this, uh, this native born Dubliner uh, who had such an impact uh, on American soccer, who passed away in his, in his birthplace in Dublin uh, two weeks ago, I just wanted us all to take a, a brief moment uh, of silence to remember uh, the life and legacy of Des McAleenan. Thank you. Thank you, David. 
So we'll go to uh, today's uh, first speaker. And uh, let me introduce Michael Kielty. He's the head of the Department for Arts, Languages, and Study Abroad in the Dublin Business School in Ireland. Michael works with students from Ireland and the United States in helping them create digital stories, mainly about sports history. He's also former average goalkeeper for Irish soccer teams, Home Farm, Tolka Rovers, and Clonmel Town, and is a member of the fan-owned Bohemian Football Club in Dublin. Uh, there's a bit of a running theme uh, with uh, goalkeeper historians uh, on today's uh, panel. So uh, we'll uh, turn it over to Michael and I'll be forwarding the slides. So have patience with me. Thank you. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Tom, and thank you for inviting me to contribute to today's uh, session. And we honor uh, Des's memory, um, as, as David has, has rightly uh, pointed out. And the subject of my short talk today is Peter J. Peel, another Irishman who became president of the United States Football Association. He was actually a rugby man connected to Gary Owen Rugby Football Club who played representative American football, cricket, and soccer in Chicago. He brought his organizational skills to the development of soccer in Chicago and in the USA, and also to Irish-American advocacy for the establishment of the Irish nation that, that I, I, I'm, I'm uh, connected from today. Before I, I do continue, I just want to extend uh, St. Patrick's Festival greetings to the society, its members, and those joining today. And it's particularly apt in 2021, as we are commemorating the 100-year anniversary of the formation of the Football Association of Ireland. Peter Peel's soccer leadership culminated in leading a USA soccer team to the 1924 Paris Olympics, and subsequently to Daly Mount Park in Dublin for the Irish Free State's first home international fixture. Um, I will come to that at the end of my talk. For Peter Peel, it was a long journey home uh, through three football codes and from Dublin to Limerick to Chicago to Paris and back again. A little background on Peter Peel. Peter was born in Dublin uh, 50 years earlier than that game in 1874 on Lower Abbey Street, right in the centre of Dublin. But he always regarded Limerick um, as his home, the place where he was raised. His parents, Margaret and John, were from Limerick City, but he would never know his father. His father died two months before he was born. Um, within a year, he was home in Limerick uh, with his mother and his four, uh, four siblings. However, tragedy dogged the Peels and two of his siblings died in 1876 in, in Limerick. In 1879, his mother remarried and two more children were born. Peter, uh, one of the children, it seems from school records, was particularly bright, but with a propensity for truancy. And uh, there's a record from 1882, the school records having him unaccounted for. That's not the only record of him missing from school. He did finish his formal school in 1889, but not before he spent a summer in Limerick jail uh, for the crime of larcenary and the items that he stole were a tablecloth, two shirts and a pair of socks with two other urchins. Uh, the idleness of youth and the lack of public and municipal recreation facilities were to become a bit of a crusade for Peter Peel when he emigrated to Chicago in 1892. 
in Limerick for an energetic uh, teenager, there was uh, plenty of sports. There was tennis, Gaelic games, rugby, rowing, and cricket. And each of those had their, its own constituency. Rugby, oddly enough, even for Ireland, would cut across uh, social boundaries, faith and affiliation, political background, and it is still known as a, lib uh, as a rugby city, played by the doctor, the lawyer, and the docker. For the Peels, rugby was their sport, the markets field on Gary Owen Road was their field of dreams, and Gary Owen Rugby Football Club was their allegiance. Gary Owen were the de facto representative team of rugby team of, of Limerick and also the administrative body for junior, junior rugby. And if Peter wanted to learn how to administer sport, he only had to go to the kitchen table because his brother Tom Peel was the vice president of, of Gary Owen. He was also an experienced rugby player. He had a, a, a career of 10, of 10 years. Um, you can go back a bit one slide um, there, Chair, and thank you. There's, there's uh, Thomas Peel is the older brother, and he played for Gary Owen Bechtel Rangers, and he won everything. He won the Munster Senior Cup, the Leinster Senior Cup. He played for Munster, and he won three international caps for Ireland. And he was the administrator for junior rugby in, in, in Limerick. And it was in junior rugby where Peter Peel started playing for a team called the Sexton Street Rovers. And he was a rover. And next slide. When he arrived in, slide in, 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 in Chicago, he was recorded as being a rugby player prior to arrival. Um, and this seems to be part of the narrative that Peel creates around his arrival in Chicago. One record say, says that he arrived for the Chicago World's Columbian Ex Ex Exposition in 1892. And another one says that he won a medical scholarship uh, to play football in, 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 in Chicago. What we do know is that he arrived um, as a first-class passenger in Boston in April 1892 and traveled overland to Chicago. And for sports, he took up a new code of football, association football, uh, briefly playing with Wanderers Cricket Club, who out of season played soccer in, in, in Chicago. Um, there was a thriving Gaelic football scene in, in, in Chicago, but Peel seems to have ignored this. And the next time we see Peel playing any kind of football, it's actually what we would call in Ireland American football. Um, I guess it's college football is probably another term that we could, could apply. And he's playing for the first National Bank football team scoring a touchdown. At the start of the 1895 season, he's playing uh, and trying out for the Chicago Athletic Association as a rugby man converted to American football. Um, the, that team has more experienced player and he does not get a game. But luckily for him, a new team is formed in Rush Medical College at Forest Lake University, amalgamated team. And he ends up playing with them. And there's one report, and I'll quote here, uh, that shows that his Gary Owen hunting or kicking skills were not lost. Uh, when he arrived in America. And the quote says, Richards fumbled it on the 10-yard line, and from there the scoring drop kick was made by Peel. Peel formerly played with the All-Ireland team and kicks equally well with either foot according to how he catches the pass. And he does not have to back up when punting. His opponents were usually deceived when he intended to punt. 
So uh, there's a false reference there to what you know to him playing for Ireland. It was actually his brother, and I've picked up in the newspapers, and I don't know whether it's the reporters got the conversation wrong or Peel was inflating his own uh, sporting ability. He would, he would end up playing uh, for Lake Forest on six occasions, but his interest would soon turn to a more sedate sport, which was cricket. And we see a picture here of him in the Wanderers cricket team who, 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 who toured extensively in Canada and welcomed teams from all over America uh, to, to Chicago. And he was a wicket keeper, middle order batsman, and he was no better or worse than any of the other cricket players on, on the team. Um, and this is one of the interests of his that would endure for the rest of his life in his professional sporting and personal life. The second, uh, second element that would endure was his, his marriage, his marriage to, to, to a lady called Catherine Kate Alderson, who was an English emigrant, and this would provide personal stability until she passed away in 1943. Finally, another area of stability was that he established a thriving physiotherapy business in Chicago, and he became the go-to man for sportsmen uh, for injuries, aches, sprains, and muscle injuries, etc. In 1912, for example, he was appointed as the bone setter for the Chicago White Sox baseball team. He kind of stayed at the forefront of, of, of his discipline. Uh, next slide. So after graduating from, from, from a Rush Medical College, established this physiotherapy business, but he, he veered towards some of the more unusual uh, methods at the time. And so you, you see him endorsing the Gardner flesh reducing and therapeutic uh, machine, but also some innovative approaches. And uh, uh, in 1921, uh, he conducted their blind massage classes for returning military uh, people uh, coming back from the war who, 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 were, who were blind. Um, so he would expand and develop that business over the next 40 years, and he held a number of prominent positions in Chicago in, 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 in the physiotherapy field until the 1950s. In the late years of the 20th century and into the 1900s and the cricket season over, Peel would turn his attention eventually to, to soccer. And one of the impetuses for his development as, a, as not just a player, because he played with the Wentworths and the Wanderers football team, was at the arrival of his brother, Tom Peel, uh, from, from Limerick, the Irish Rugby International. And this seemed to develop or spur an interest in, in sports administration. And we soon find that Peel brings his promotional talent to bear on the soccer game in Chicago, and he organizes a Peel's versus Goldbeard's exhibition game. Next slide. And he becomes vice president of the newly established Chicago League of Professional Football, or Association Football, sorry. There were four drivers that, ate that allowed the game to flourish, and much of it is explained in, in, in Gabe Logan's uh, excellent book uh, and his work in researching and uh, and uh, recording the history of, of soccer in Chicago. But one of those was the, the visit of the Corinthians and the Pilgrims, these gentlemen amateur teams of uh, with, with, with players of international and caliber uh, to Chicago. The second was there was new breeds of immigrants who, who caught, up, caught the, the soccer football craze in England and, and Ireland and uh, had arrived in Chicago and joined and established soccer teams. 
Finally, was actually something PLD. Two things that PLD was he established the PL Challenge Cup. And this, this served as uh, with a percentage of the proceeds to alleviate the suffering and loss of care earnings for injured soccer players. And finally, was the building of something called Peel Park, a purpose-built infrastructure for soccer to develop in Chicago. And uh, this illustrated, um, and a quote from Gabe's work, is the growing Irish influence in Chicago and how it manifested uh, on the soccer pitch. When the USFA, or the United States Football Association, was founded in 1913, Peel's work did not go unrecognized. And it, and, it, and it was stated that he was a donor of the Peel Challenge Cup who gave us time, who gave us money, and gave us services to the advancement of soccer football in Chicago. It's no surprise that in 1970 and 18, Peel was actually elected president of the US of A, and he was returned unanimously as president in 1918 and 19. And that was his first two uh, periods as president of the United States Football Association. Something else happened around that time, 1918, Peter Peel on the next slide, was elected president of a prominent, deep prominent Irish American organization in, in Chicago, which was called the Irish Fellowship Club of Chicago. And this was recognizing his soccer work um, as president of the United States Football Association. He has done much to advance soccer football in this country. And Peel had built a national and local profile during the war in organizing games in aid of the Red Cross and in, in his presidency of the, of the uh, USFA. So what was the Irish Fellowship Club of, of, of Chicago? It was established in 1901 by prominent Irish Americans of Chicago. And the purpose was, was to unite all the schisms of Irish, into, uh, of Irish political and social movements. So the Fenians, the Home Rulers, the Land Leaguers, the Gaelic Leaguers, physical, physical force men and moral force men, Republicans, Orthodox and unorthodox, and Demo Democrats of every conceivable brand of irreconcilability. They were to get, they, they provided a platform for politicians to speak to an Irish American audience. So we would see visits from John Redmond, the Nationalist MP, Douglas Hyde, Dr. Douglas Hyde, uh, the Nationalist uh, T.P. O'Connor, uh, the, the, the quasi-unionist Horace Plunkett, and the Republican uh, Eamon de Valera, all of the major figures uh, leading up to the revolutionary um, period in, in Irish history. And also hosting President Taft, uh, the US president who, who came along, which gave recognition for the Irish community in, in Chicago. As president, he pronounced on, on conscription in Ireland, the League of, League of Nations, Irish self-determination, of which this letter um, on behalf of the fellowship was sent to the president uh, at the time of the Paris Peace Conference. He, he was also part of other civic mo movements in Chicago, particularly against uh, uh, the rise of the KKK um, around 1921-22 uh, in Chicago. And he was part of an orchestrated propaganda campaign of Irish nationalists, uh, of the Irish nationalist movement and the Irish Republican movement. Um, and he was a key part of that. Uh, but there was also a social side to what he did. And uh, one of them was playing, uh, playing golf. And uh, you can see there's a photo here of a cup where he got the moniker, the soccer king. 
and then he got that from the Irish Fellowship and he had a lifelong membership of the Irish Fellowship. Uh, on the next slide, uh, uh, I wanted just to highlight uh, the, you know, the, 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 the role Peel played in bringing uh, the soccer Olympic team to, to Dublin, but also to Paris. He was elected to US Olympic uh, Committee and his, his first attempt to bring a soccer team to the 1920 Antwerp Olympics was stillborn. They couldn't raise enough money and there was $25,000 needed and they started too late and they never got the money to send the team. So with lessons learned, he was elected uh, to the US Olympic Committee and in 1923, he was again elected president of the US Football Association and set in train a, a serious fundraising uh, campaign over, an, uh, over a year and a half, and which was very, very successful. And they were able to send uh, a team to the first, uh, first tournament for the first tournament that uh, the US were involved in. And, and they were one of the 22 teams. And that, the number of teams is actually quite large because it wasn't exceeded by any World Cup or Olympic tournament until 1982. And with the lessons learned, fundraising started early and was successful. However, not everything goes to plan. There were two controversies. One was the picking up the team, which was uh, long drawn out and revolved around the, the first idea was to send the winner of the Amateur Cup in, in the USA as the Olympic team. But we, it turned out that the likely winners were not actually going to be American-born, all American-born players. And so that it, it, it became a, a committee-led pick uh, and there were tryouts for this. Second controversy was a falling out with Thomas Cal, who was the secretary of the US Football Association, leading to an unseemly incident where Thomas Cal pulled a knife um, at a meeting with Peter J. Peel over one thing or another. However, they made it to, to, to Paris. Um, on the next slide, uh, we can see the results of uh, the team. For an amateur, these were not the best players that the USA had. Um, these were amateur players. Um, but uh, they, 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 they got a, a hard-fought 1-0 win over Estonia. They were unfortunate to meet Uruguay in the second round, who were the eventual winners, who were, for all intents and purposes, a professional team. And uh, a friendly was organized afterwards in Warsaw, where they, they ran out through two winners. A lovely picture there um, of, of uh, Jules Rime, uh, Peter Peel and Kate, and uh, the full team there. Ireland, on the other hand, got a by in the first round. They won 1-0, hard fought against uh, Bulgaria, and lost 2-1 after extra time against the Netherlands, and played in Paris, played a friendly against Estonia, winning 2-0. Winning so how did... Um, how did uh, uh, the USA end up in, in Dublin? Well, the two friendlies against Poland and Ireland were through personal connections. Burford, uh, the, the coach of the American team, had worked in Warsaw for, for three years and through his connections got a game against uh, Poland. And uh, Peel used his Irish charm on, his, on, the, on, the, on the Irish Free State Association and organized the team uh, organize the game to come to, to Daly Man Park. On the next slide, he arrived in Ireland. 
Ireland had its own little issues about sending a team to, to the Olympics and some of it involved, uh, involved money. Um, Glasgow Celtic played a friendly here before the Olympic Games to raise money to send, uh, send a team. There were other objections. One of them was the, the, the head of the Irish Olympic Committee was JJ Kane. He was pro-GAA, vet, vehemently anti-soccer man and refused to sign off on the soccer team. And it was only through uh, FIFA interventions that we were able to send a team. And the other one was that it needed to represent all of Ireland because the Olympic Committee was an all-Ireland uh, body, not like the, the soccer body. Um, and so there was a token uh, Norton uh, person who was picked who happened to be the captain of the Irish uh, rugby team, uh, Ernie Crawford, and a player with the club. I remember with Bohemian's football club. And of course, they were all amateurs and, and, and the USA and, uh, and, and the Irish Free State adhered to that amateur criteria, unlike some of the other teams. On the day, uh, the Irish pervaded 3-1. And I don't want to rub it in on my American colleagues, but a hat trick from, from Ned Brooks. Um, and let the record state that it was a great a goal from uh, James uh, Rohde in reply uh, from Patterson, uh, New Jersey. On the next slide, and before I hand back to the chair, um, Peter Peel uh, held a number of civic positions for Illinois Parks and Recreation Department for 20 years after 1924, which I see this culmination of a soccer career and he promoted youth engagement in sports and fitness especially during the second world war peter peel's simultaneous uh, 1918 tenure as president of the U united states football association and the irish fellowship club of chicago during the irish conscription and political crisis and the peace conference in paris marked him out as a counterpoint to receive received narrative of irish soccer men being pro-British. Even from afar, we can see Peel's um, uh, pro-Irish uh, uh, roots. Peel's career can also be interpreted through the prism of his early Limerick formation in a rugby playing family and his own fluid sporting and civic uh, activity. Peel was prominent as a, as a Chicago personality uh, and he continued his membership of the Irish Fellowship and marched um, in the St. Patrick's Day uh, parade despite his advanced years well into the 1960s and he was on hand to meet in this photograph to meet the president of Ireland Sean T. O'Kelly to Chicago and welcome him as part of the Irish Fellowship uh, delegation in 1959. Peter Peel passed peacefully in May 1969 and the Peel Cup uh, was retired after 61 years and was replaced by the Governor's Cup in Illinois. Uh, thank you, Chair, um, for that rattle through the career of, of Peter Peel. Um, and uh, Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, we're going to move uh, right on to uh, our next uh, presenter, Padre Coyle, a journalist, writer, and broadcaster. He has written books, articles, and stage plays relating the story of Belfast Celtic. He's the chairman of the Belfast Celtic Society. Welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Delighted to be with you from Belfast. Uh, from Celtic Park to Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe is the final part of the remarkable story of a club 
that was the heartbeat of its community. 72 years on, the people of West Belfast still mourn its passing. In June 1948, the United States Soccer Football Association, along with the American Soccer League, keen to grow the game beyond the immigrant communities who came from countries where football was a dominant sport, decided to organize an international tournament for the summer of the following year. That festival of football with teams representing Ireland, Scotland, England and Sweden would play sides from the USA as well as each other over a period of several weeks. Many of the dream teams will be playing at the 22,000 seater Triborough Stadium, an athletics and baseball venue on Randall's Island in New York. The Scottish FA agreed to send its international squad, Newcastle United and Camera Terna, better known as IFK Gothenburg, would represent their associations. And Belfast Celtic, recently crowned league champions for the 14th time, accepted its invitation to compete, having first sought the approval of the Irish FA. Scotland offered a choice, decided to play Belfast Celtic instead of Gothenburg or Newcastle. Within months, Celtic's relationship with its parent association would be on the rocks. Few were to know that the club's forthcoming stateside trip would turn out to be its swan song. On December the 27th, Celtic's traditional Christmas encounter with Linfield had ended in disgraceful scenes at Windsor Park when a section of the home support invaded the pitch and attacked the Celtic team as it attempted to reach the changing rooms. Unfortunately, Celtic's teenage centre forward, Jimmy Jones, didn't manage to escape in time. His right leg was broken in a violent assault by the mob and the skills of the orthopaedic surgeon Jimmy Withers would save Jones's leg from amputation. In the aftermath, no one was arrested or apprehended. The Celtic board was incandescent and seeking retribution. Early in 49, the board decided on the nuclear option. In the weeks that followed, the club quietly began the process of selling off its assets, its best players, on condition that they would be available for the forthcoming tour of the US. After completing its league commitments on April the 21st, the traveling party, 15 players, manager Eliza Scott, the trainer Paddy McGuigan, and three directors prepared for the journey to Cove to connect with the SS Mauritania for the Atlantic crossing to New York on April the 27th. They also invited three guest players to come along with them. Before leaving Belfast, Celtic's secretary posted a letter to the football authorities tendering their resignation from the Irish League. This drastic course of action didn't generate the response one might have expected. Imagine today's media storm if news emerged that Liverpool, Arsenal, Barcelona or Juventus announced that they were quitting the game. Perhaps something might be sorted out and Celtic would continue. In the meantime, the North American tour was the most pressing matter on everyone's minds. There was one other person who traveled with the group, Celtic supporter Enda Fanning, whose family ran a fruit and vegetable business in Belfast, Derry 
in Dublin. Ender was given the trip as a present by his family. On the journey across the Atlantic, Ender would get to know the players and would become the team's unofficial photographer. By the time the Mauritania crept through the fog into Manhattan on the morning of May the 3rd, Mick O'Flanagan, the final addition to the Belfast Celtic party, was already in transit to New York. O'Flanagan, a dual Ireland rugby and soccer international who played for Bohemians RFC and was a member of uh, Bohemians, worked in the family pub business in Dublin. His availability was limited, so Celtic paid to have him flown to America to save time. During Celtic's playing season, the manager Scott, renowned as a hard taskmaster, enforced a ban on his players drinking in pubs the night before any game. Stories abound of how Scott's sisters would do sentry duty outside some of the best known hostelries in the area, watching for anyone infringing the rules. Word would find its way to Scott, who would arrive in the pub and march the errant player out the door, held by the collar of his shirt. Imagine then the player's delight on discovering that their New York base, the Paramount Hotel on West 46th Street, close to the heartland of Broadway, housed a nightclub in its basement. Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe had been a, a jazz and vaudeville venue for more than 10 years. It had been opened by songwriter and impresario Billy Rose, best known for the lyrics of the song, Me and My Shadow. It was a magnet for New York's rich and famous. Betty Grable, Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra were among the clientele. There had been pages of press coverage of Celtic's impending visit to the city, and their presence in New York led to numerous invitations to dinners and receptions hosted by Irish-American groups. But first stop, though, was to City Hall to meet Mayor William O'Dwyer. O'Dwyer was an immigrant from Mayo in 1910. The Spanish-speaking man had risen through the legal profession before World War II, gaining fame as a prosecutor of Murder, Inc., the organised crime syndicate. O'Dwyer then moved into politics. Celtic's opening match was on Sunday the 8th of May against the New York All-Stars, a select team from Brookhatton, Hispano and the Hakoa clubs. Being paraded around behind a marching band would have been a new experience for the Celtic players. As to the game itself, 2-0 ahead through a Paddy Bonner penalty and a Johnny Denver volley, Celtic tired in the second half as Cuban exile Jesus Pito Villanon and the Armenian Yeprem Shakurian forced a 2-2 draw. Writing in World Sports Extra Journal, Erwin Single stated, American soccer has come a long way these past three years and proof of the pudding was this moral victory by the hobbyists over the specialists. Now the 15,000 crowd had turned up and they got more than they expected. There was a preliminary game at which the New York Americans and the Philadelphia Nationals were vying for the American Soccer League Championship. The game ended 2-2 in normal time. There needed to be a winner. Five periods of extra time, 49 minutes in total were played before the Nationals claimed the title in sudden death 
when a New York player needlessly conceded a corner kick. What a way to finish a game. Leo Kieran, a sports writer with the Brooklyn Eagle, argued that football needed some rule changes to make it more attractive. Getting rid of offside, allowing substitutions and penalising time-wasting would help, he suggested. On a positive note, he wrote, the fact that the contest through a 15,000 gate at $2.50 top was proof that the popularity of the game here as a spectator sport is on the rise. However, the Celtic team, in particular manager Scott, were more concerned about the news back in Belfast. Newspapers there published a photograph of Scott carrying a tricolour in the pre-match parade alongside Charles Connolly, editor of the Irish Echo. It was a sensitive time on the island of Ireland. On April the 18th, the 26 counties had officially become the Republic of Ireland. The families of some players who were Protestant, including Scots, faced criticism for being seen walking behind a nationalist rather than a union flag. As Celtic continued its preparations for the upcoming fixture against Scotland, there were games in Toronto, New Jersey, Fall River and Philadelphia. Victories against Ulster United 5-0 at the Maple Leaf Stadium and 3-0 against the New Jersey All-Stars in front of a 10,000 crowd at Kearney High School saw Celtic get into its stride before losing 2-1 to the New England All-Stars in an evening match at Fall River. Away from the action, it emerged that that game might not have happened. The promoter and the Southern New England Football Association were at loggerheads over the proper licensing of the fixture and the provision of complimentary tickets for visiting referees. When the match officials threatened to leave, the promoter eventually relented. Heavy rain in New York forced the game with the Philadelphia All-Stars to be relocated to Yellow Jacket Stadium on Wednesday the 25th of May, where a crowd of 3,000 saw the tourists win the 10-gold thriller 6-4. This slide shows Harry Walker, the team captain, and Buddha Hearn checking the surface before the game kicked off. But up next was the big one, Celtic against the British international champion Scotland at Randall's Island on Sunday, May the 29th. The game was etched in the memory of the captain, Harry Walker, when I interviewed him 30 years ago. I don't know if that's coming through, sorry. That's okay. Well, I can tell you that uh, the Scotland captain, George Young, more or less, was very disparaging and said... Uh, you know, we'll give you a bit of a game today. And uh, they certainly did. Regarded as one of the best teams in the world at the time, Scotland had played in front of an estimated half a million spectators in their five previous matches combined. This game against a club side in front of a paltry 15,000 should not have presented too much difficulty. However, Belfast Celtic... The drone of right to go around George, George Young turned and says, well, Harry... I hope you can give us a bit of a match today. Well, I just well, replied, George, we may give you a shock. Well, indeed. Belfast Celtics' George Hazlett, a former Glasgow Celtic player, knew the tactics that his fellow countrymen were likely to use. 
And as it turned out, goals from Derry-born friends Johnny Campbell and Alex Moore put the Scots to the sword as Celtic won that match 2-0. In his personal diary, Alex Moore remembered that epic day. To quote, Today has been the most sensational day of my life. The way the Scots acted once they arrived at the hotel here, they would hardly speak to us. To play and score against them was something of a dream come true. After the game, we were carried off the field, not to mention the $100, £25 bonus, which we got for winning. Harry Walker, too, recalled the aftermath. They weren't too pleased at all. They travelled back to New York on the same bus, and there wasn't a word. There's stony silence, except, except among the Celtic players. Scotland did ask for a rematch, but Celtic turned it down. With that game out of the way, the Celtic squad abandoned any pretense of obeying the team curfew to be in bed by 10.30. Late into the night, the sound of music drifting up from Billy Rose's diamond horseshoe mixed with the crash of breaking glass as empty beer bottles tossed out windows struck the pavements below. But Celtic still had commitments to meet. The next day, they drew 3-3 with the Philadelphia Nationals, who blew a 2-0 lead against the hungover visitors. Two days later, Celtic beat the Montreal All-Stars 4-1. After that, there was the 4-2 defeat of the Dave Kennedy Detroit Select, played at the University of Detroit Stadium. And on Sunday, June the 12th, Belfast Celtic's final game in football saw them lose 3-0 to the Swedes of Camraterna. Two days later, the farewell from New York was a sad affair. Irish-American supporters wept at the quayside. The realisation dawned that this was the end of something special. One fan pleaded for a memento. Goalkeeper Kevin McAlinden attempted to throw his jersey down to the quayside. He was prevented from doing so by one of the Celtic directors. A week later, on June the 21st, families and supporters congregated at Great Northern Railway Station in Belfast as the train from Dublin arrived. Asked about Celtic's future, all that Chairman Austin Donnelly had to say to the press was, we have gone from the Irish League. There was a mantra among the people of West Belfast, when we had nothing, we had Belfast Celtic, and then we had everything. However, on that longest day of the year, as the players, families and team supporters dispersed from the railway station, they did so with the echo of Celtic's glorious history ebbing away into the streets nearby. Thank you very much. Uh, Noble applause to uh, that poetic ending. Thank you. Um, and moving things along, uh, let me introduce uh, Dr. Connor Curran an adjunct lecturer in the School of Education, Trinity College, Dublin. He has published extensively on the history of sport in Ireland and has recently completed a postdoc research fellowship on the history of physical education in Ireland at Trinity College, Dublin. He's also just completed a master's thesis in education, which looks at the re-immigration of Irish players with US soccer scholarships. So uh, welcome to Dr. Curran. Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, so thanks very much for having me. Um, 
So basically, this the short story. It's it's um, in the process at, at the moment. It's um, still building on it, but um, it's really drawn from my recently completed Masters of Education thesis at Trinity, entitled um, "The Recruitment, Education, and Playing Experiences of Remigrated Male Irish Born Soccer Scholarship Awardees, 1969 to 2000: Case Study," and it presents the data gleaned from archival sources as a starting point for the study and examines the views of 10 Irish-born soccer scholars who later returned to Ireland, um, focusing here on their recruitment. So it'll be shown that players um, recruited were generally playing at a very high level of schoolboy soccer when selected to take up the scholarships. However, the academic requirements to gain a scholarship remained low over the entire period. Initially, recruitment came through the work of Father Michael Devine, Sligo priest with connections to Dan Holcomb, soccer coach at the University of South Florida. In 1969, Holcomb recruited Greg McElroy from Dublin, who's pictured here, and so began the process. By the 1980s, communications between Irish schools and U.S. universities offering soccer scholarships have improved significantly. Despite a more formalized structure being in place in one Dublin post-leaving certificate institution college to Egypt by the mid-1990s, some players continued to negotiate their own recruitment. So this case study opens up a new field of study in terms of Irish participation in U.S. soccer scholarships and players' experiences. In doing so, it builds on John Bale's study of international athletes on U.S. scholarships in the 1980s while adding to the growing literature on Irish sports history and education and migration. The Irish sports historian Tom Hunt has written <clears throat> of the migration of Irish athletes to the USA for scholarship purposes that the intense competition with its associated heavy training workload, the travel, the culture shock, scholastic demands and the homesickness were complicating factors. However, the experiences of, of soccer players on scholarships have not yet been examined. This thesis serves as a starting point in opening up research for more in-depth investigation of Irish soccer scholars in the USA and can act as a comparative study for wider historical research and to other nationalities who have undertaken soccer scholarships there. But due to time constraints, this paper will focus solely on recruitment. So documentary research was the starting point for the study, but there was limitations to what could be found in this data. And the vast majority of Irish newspaper reports focused on the players' recruitment, and these were often written in a congratulatory tone and said little about their education experiences at US universities or the value of the degree in um, terms of post-university careers. Similarly, the value of the playing experiences in the USA in regards to later professional football warranted further investigation as the newspaper articles tended to be lacking in clarity regarding this in the case of most players identified. Despite such limitations, newspaper reports formed a base for the interviewees' information provided, and therefore this was a necessary part of the research. The newspaper archives mainly provided data regarding recruitment of players and testified growing interest by U.S. universities and Irish players in the late 20th century and vice versa. So a breakdown of the overall figures compiled through newspaper research illustrates that player recruitment by U.S. universities for scholarship purposes was very limited from Ireland up to the 1970s, but it more than trebled in the 1980s and remained slightly above that level in the 1990s. 
only one player, Greg McElroy, who I mentioned was recruited from the Republic of Ireland to take up a US soccer scholarship in 1969. Only 16 players were identified as being recruited for soccer scholarship purposes in the 1970s. And in the following decade, 58 players migrated to take up soccer scholarships, while in the 1990s, 61 players were identified as having done so. And naturally, um, there may have been some underreporting, but these are the most accurate figures generated by a newspaper search of players. And I suppose it indicates that by the 1980s, the idea of moving to the USA from to take up a soccer scholarship had gained more acceptance among aspiring Irish footballers, and US universities were by then more willing to select Irish players. And also, soccer networks between Irish clubs and US universities had also been strengthened at that point. Now, the first college course to facilitate this in Ireland was College of Owen in Dublin. It wasn't established in 1987, and a more direct pathway was present at College of Egypt. And um, by the mid-1990s, this appears to have developed as a clear route to a U.S. scholarship. Um, but as seen, there's no major difference between figures for recruitment in the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, so in the early 1970s, um, recruitment from Ireland for U.S. soccer scholarship purposes was through word of mouth and largely unstructured in terms of trials. University of South Florida recruits Fergus Hopper, who's pictured here, um, he later earned a place in the Hall of Fame, um, stated when interviewed that in relation to Father Devine's role in recruitment at the U University of Southern Florida, that I think they were just going on his word that these people were good enough, and then he was probably bringing them newspaper articles. Hopper had, according to coach Dan Holcomb, arrived in the USA with the most impressive credentials of a soccer player in the school's history. Holcomb remarked that if ever there was a blue chipper, this is the boy. Father Devine spent his summers in South Florida and was also instrumental in organizing John Kent's scholarship. This player was already prominent in local soccer circles and had been on trial with Glasgow Celtic. Having not been successful, he took up a four-year scholarship, and this was the general duration of the award, although he later dropped out. Now, two interviewees who were recruited in the 1980s, Niall Harrison and Trevor Scanlon at Penn State University, were also notified of the scholarship opportunities through their school at Summerhill College at Sligo, which had links with American universities since the early 70s, was being uh, developed by um, Father Devine. Now, despite the availability of Dublin courses as a pathway by the early 1990s, some players continued to be recruited in a less structured manner. Mark Fitzgerald, an All-American who moved to Mercyhurst College in 1997, managed to gain information about the scholarships by obtaining U.S. soccer scholarship brochures and making inquiries himself. He was attending a football training course in Dublin, having left school, while Brian Murphy of Boston University had already begun to examine the prospects while he was in secondary school. Uh, two of the interviewees, Murphy and Ross Hainsworth, did attend college in Egypt, which was designed to facilitate entry to a U.S. soccer scholarship, and both spoke highly of the experience. However, Murphy orchestrated his own move to the USA, and by the late 1990s, player recruitment to the USA for soccer scholarship purposes was still haphazard, and was at times initiated by players himself. Both Marcus Jared and Brian Murphy availed of trials and utilized family and other social connections in the USA, 
to gain the attention of US university coaches. Paul Teig of Calvary University, who is also a Hall of Famer, was spotted when he participated in matches against visiting US teams in Dublin. And at least one Irish school arranged a trip to the USA where matches were arranged with a view to putting on players on show before US um, university team scouts. So players' migration to the USA was largely influenced by the lack of opportunities to break into full-time professional football in Britain and opportunities to earn a degree while also playing at a decent, at a decent level. And those in peripheral areas especially struggled to gain the attention of British scouts. Trevor Scanlon, who's pictured here, a player from Sligo in the northwest of Ireland, who moved to Penn State, um, noted that in terms of the chances of getting a move, it was limited. I had international under 15 trials, but it definitely favoured the Dublin players. The country lads were put up on a train, they were brought out there, yet got changed, put on, and that was really it. It was difficult. I never had any trials a lot of the time. So the States was a great opportunity for me to continue my football career. He'd been recommended to Penn State by his PE teacher, David Pugh, who was also his football master at Sligo Rovers in Ireland. The school also had a record of players. He was then approached by a US university scout who was based in Belfast. Most interviewees went to the university, which offered them a scholarship to one player, Ross Hainsworth, who moved to um, Northeastern University in Boston, was influenced by the fact that he, was in, he had a number of friends who were living in Boston. Lyle Harrison was supposed to move to a different university, but switched to Penn State after his initial choice lost her scholarship due to NCAA violations. All interviewees were recruited as teenagers and were generally playing at a high level of schoolboy or club football, and six had already featured in the League of Ireland with clubs there. Fergus Hopper, who um, mentioned earlier, had represented Ireland at youth international level, and John Kent, as I said, had trials with Glasgow Celtic. Now, while U US universities continued to seek to at a high level of schoolboy football, one people who had not formally reached the standard of the truth well matches where scouts were present in Dublin. In the early 1970s, potential soccer scholars had to pass the Leaving Certificate Examination, which is the highest secondary school level examination in Ireland. Um, they also had to undertake the US SAT examinations, which were held for Irish residents in Dublin. This remained the general entry method throughout the later 20th century. While soccer scholarships were by then operational in Ireland, the high points total needed to gain entry meant those less academically inclined were unable to obtain long for soccer. University College Dublin Soccer Scholarship awardee Seamus Kelly stated in a newspaper interview that, along with undertaking trials, he obtained eight corners and repeating the leaving certificate examination in the 1990s. He replaced in a bachelor of commerce there, illustrating the competitive nature of the UCD Soccer Scholarship Award. This scholarship system had been initiated at UCD in 1979 with Dr. Tony O'Neill was the first in Ireland. But as I stated, it was very hard to get places on it. Um, the lack of access to university courses at home was a motivating factor for some players as they could gain entry to somewhere courses in the USA to passing the leaving certificate and gaining a sufficient number of points in the SAT examination. 
For example, in 1976, there was approximately 2,000 applicants for 50 places on the Republic of Ireland's only physical education course at the National College of Physical Education in Limerick. While the number of applicants had dropped to 867 in 1989, as P positions became less available in Irish schools, competition for places remained high. And Paddy McDade, who moved to the University of Cleveland in um, 1992 stated that we could not have obtained a place on the PE course in Limerick in the 1990s with the points he obtained in his final exams and the idea of doing a similar course in the USA was a key factor in his migration. This is not to say that all players neglected other options with Brian Murphy who's pictured here um, stating that he'd applied for other courses in his leaving certificate year but he selected a post-leaving certificate course in Dublin which is linked to the US soccer scholarship system. Interestingly, Paul Teig of um, Caldwell University stated that he was not required to do the, the SAT examination, although all the other interviewees did so. They all noted that the examination, which focuses on English and mathematics through multiple choice, was largely unproblematic. Having obtained the results, some players were sent contracts and information packs about the scholarship by their chosen universities. This was shown to partially at least one player to leave Ireland. Mark Fitzgerald of Mercer's College noted that he'd been apprehensive about the move, but was finally convinced by the material he received in relation to his university. Most players, however, had no doubts about moving. Niall McGonagall of the University of Southern Alabama um, stated that moving to take up a scholarship in the early 1990s was amazing, absolutely amazing. You could imagine what it would be like setting out on a journey like that. I remember everything about that morning. I remember who took me to the airport. I remember the flight, the people I met on the flight. It's such a vivid memory, memory because I was totally buzzing. You had, your, you had two bags and your whole life was in the bags. It was just amazing to be heading off on an amazing adventure, you know, he said when interviewed. Um, next slide, please, Tom. So the initial recruitment of Irish-born players for um, soccer scholarship purposes um, by the University of Southern Florida in the late 1960s and early 70s, came at a similar time to international recruitment undertaken at two other US universities. And Frank Zangari has noted the role of Dr. A.M. Abraham of Clemson University in initiating a so soccer program there in 1967 and recruiting foreign players. Like Dan Holcomb at the US, um, sorry, the University of Southern Florida, who contacted Irish players initially through Father Devine. Abraham utilized the player from Guyana, Clyde Brown, who assisted him in recruiting players from there. But they also targeted players from Jamaica and Nigeria for the Clemson University team. In addition, in the, in the early 1970s, Howard University coach Lincoln Phillips of Trinidad was instrumental in recruiting players from African and Caribbean nations. John Fields interviews the six athletes who'd undertaken athletic scholarships at U.S. universities in the 1980s illustrate a number of similarities with the Irish soccer players before the study and how they were recruited. In particular, none of Fields' six interviewees had previously been to their universities or undertaken trials to earn a place on a scholarship. Instead, three had written to the universities making inquiries, while the others had been approached by coaches. While a number of Irish interviewees had no real knowledge of the scholarships before they were approached, Mark Fitzgerald and Brian Murphy made their own inquiries about the possibilities of moving to the USA. 
Similarly, like most of the Irish soccer players, the athletes in the IPL were all involved at a high level of competition, and one had been part of the Great Britain Junior Squad. However, while all of the Irish soccer players interviewed migrated to the USA as teenagers, only four of Bale's athletes were at a similar age, with two in their 20s, illustrating how recruitment policies differ in soccer and athletics. In addition, the athletes interviewed by Bale all noted that they were motivated to undertake the scholarships as a perceived athletic standard in the US and better than those in their home countries. They appear to have placed less emphasis on their educational progress as a motivation for migrating unlike the majority of Irish employees. Mark Fitzgerald of Mercyhurst College, for example, stated that, I think the biggest thing for the scholarship was the fact that I was going to be opening doors for myself in terms of some level of professionalism in soccer. And also I was going to do an education knowing that I could play the sports, I had to do the education. And I suppose that was the primary thing. I knew that at 19, 20, any chance of being professional had gone at that stage. But I still harbored some ambition just to play at a really decent level. I had a number of opportunities at League of Ireland clubs, um, but just in the back of my mind, it was always, what will I do if I get injured? What sort of fallback would you have? Um, you know, he said it. Uh, next slide, uh, Tom, please. So a key finding in regard to university soccer scholarship entry was that the academic standard required was not very high in comparison to that of the public environment. And a number of those interviewed by Bale similarly stated that academic entry was unproblematic, with one athlete noting that he had not completed his A-levels, but could still gain entry to a U.S. university. Bale has noted that by the late 1980s, Division One American Football College had only to gain a score of 700 out of a potential 1,600 points in their SAT exam to gain entry. A number of athletes interviewed were also sent information packs prior to including they did not mention what they thought of the SAT examination in the study. The attitudes of the interviewees were generally positive towards education. So the Irish interviewees were generally positive towards education. And one player, Brian Murphy, noted the influence of his family background on this view. The influence of family on players who have undertaken third-level education has been noted in a previous study of Irish professionals towards attitudes to education, which I undertook. Bale has stated that foreign student athletes tend to be well qualified academically and well motivated towards participation in both academics and athletics, but some are serious enough to apply for places in universities and colleges in their own countries. This is also found to be the case with Irish players on US soccer scholarships who are capable of passing the leaving certificate and SAT examinations to ensure they gained entry to the US universities from gaining the conditional entry awards. While it must be noted that those recruited by British soccer clubs as teenagers have traditionally done so without finishing second level education, the interviewees in this study differ considerably in their attitudes to education as adolescents in comparison to other young footballers analysed by Burke in her study of Irish teenagers recruited by British clubs and the Gillespie's study of um, young Scottish players. These adolescents placed a lower value in education and were primarily focused on developing professional soccer careers. And just for the conclusion, please come. So this paper has illustrated that the recruitment of Irish-born soccer scholars remained unstructured in the late 1990s, despite the development of two relevant PLC courses by the early part of that decade. Players recruited had, with one except, generally level of schoolboy or club football. 
Well, in the late, well, in the 1970s, recruitment was generally through work but in the 1990s, the system was developed. Related networks were formally established in Ireland and in the USA. Players' migration was driven by a lack of an adequate structure for professional soccer in Ireland and by limited opportunities to access college degrees, particularly those played sport. Um, the prospect of developing their soccer career was naturally important, but a few players admitted that they knew that their move to America reduced their chances of a career in British professional soccer. Having demonstrated their capabilities on the soccer field, the examination requirement for entry to a U.S. soccer scholarship was not overly taxing. Passing the leaving certificate was a formality for all interviewees. The majority admitted that the SAT examination was easy, although one player admitted they had no previous knowledge of what it was. This paper has offered a comparison between the experiences of 10 Irish interviewees and other players and athletes featured in a number of related academic studies. Similarities were noted in terms of the entry requirements of international athletes into U.S. scholarships. They were found to be set at quite a low level, although less has been written on the examinations undertaken by non-Irish scholarship awardees. All scholarship awardees were, however, expected to demonstrate an adequate level of competence in their sport. A number of athletes had also made their own approaches to universities, and some were approached by coaches via networks, rather than coming through any formal system of recruitment such as courses related to gaining scholarship entry. However, it must be noted that Bale's interviews took place in the 1980s, when structures for recruiting were less developed than in the late 1990s. At the time of writing, I am still conducting interviews with Irish players who remained in America so that a much wider comparative study can be completed. And this will is hoped to be published as a monograph in the future. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Connor, and thank you to uh, all three panelists. Uh, and let, let's let's open it up to some Q&A uh, for, for the time we have left. Could I ask, I was just wondering if Connor could say, Although this research hasn't been completed yet, has he any rough idea? Many players stayed in America who went out there on scholarships and, and made it their home. That's a very good question. Actually, I, I can't say at the moment, um, but there's certainly, as you know, like there would have been coaches and players um, who stayed out there. Now, the, the number who actually broke into major league soccer was found to be quite low, I think. Um, I think Paul Keegan was one of the few players that, that played for New England Revolution. Um, but um, I can't actually give you a, a figure for it, but um, to be honest. I'll, I'll, yeah. give you, I'll give you one of my favorites, uh, Ian Hennessy, uh, who I think played for a little bit of time for, for the Metro Stars. He played at Seton Hall University, and I saw that number of 58 in the 80s there, you know, I think uh, 10 or so of them came from Seton Hall and probably half a dozen of them scored on me at some point uh, when we played against them. But uh, Ian was a big strapping, uh, I think Dublin born uh, center forward. And he went, he stayed married American and uh, earned a PhD in biochemistry and was gonna be a college professor. Um, and didn't want to go down that route. And he's been the longtime head coach at the University of Delaware now. So he's kind of lived this experience and, and now he's on the other side. And I'm not sure if he goes back to Ireland to recruit. I know he's recruited in Spain and some other uh, foreign countries, but, but a great example uh, of what uh, Connor has talked about. Can I ask Connor, um, 
has there been any thoughts of a, a bunch of research is done or whatever? But this seems to be pretty ripe for some sort of a television documentary about the, the experiences of the Irish over there doing that sort of um, sporting and educational mix. Um, yeah, um, it, I haven't done any TV broadcasting or anything. I mean, um, I, I presume, I, I suppose, really, the, the study is still still being retaken by me. I, I did actually interview Ian Hennessy there recently and, and some of the players who, who stayed over there, um, like Richie Grant, who's, who's in, in California at the moment. Um, but... Um, yeah, I suppose the main thing for me is, is to, to get the book published. To, it's, it's kind of in its infancy at the moment and to get the book published. And I suppose I'd be happy to contribute to any sort of a broadcast that was on it. But at the moment, I'm just focused on completing research. Yeah. How long more would that take you, do you think, Connor? <laughs> How long is a piece of string? <laughs> um, well, I've got, I, I, I'm aiming to do just as a sample, just 10 um, interviews with players who've come back, I've done them for the thesis, and then I've done about 10 with players who've stayed over, and the rest is just, um, as you know, documentary evidence from newspapers, and um, I, I mainly kind of focused there on the on the interviews, so the, the paper might have come across as maybe been more kind of sociological than historical, but um, I've, I've looked at America AmericanNewspapers.com as well, I started looking at them, so I'm hoping to get a, a wider perspective, so yeah. Um, be another few years, I think, for it, unfortunately. Well, good luck with that. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, Connor, just wondering, um, actually, first of all, a uh, great presentation as, uh, well, three great presentations. Just, I'm wondering about, like, kind of, have you looked at any current trends? Because I know there's some prominent, um, Aaron Malloy probably being the most prominent, uh, you know, who's Started off at Bowes, played for Drada, got a scholarship over, I think, to Penn State, and is now kind of on the cusp of MLS kind of first team football. Um, there's a recent signing of um, young uh, Tiga Agbere from you know who's at Waterford. Uh, he's gone gone to university in Texas now. What are the kind of scouting networks like now? Have they modernized? Is it kind of a bit more uh, formalized, or is there still kind of th that um, what would you call uh, informal networks? getting kids' scholarships over to the States? Yeah, I imagine it's, it's a lot. Um, I, ha I haven't actually, my cutoff point was 2000, but I did end up interviewing two other players who um, are currently coaching over there. One of them is Adam Grant and um, mm -hmm. Shane Keeley as well. And um, so I'd probably include them in it. But um, I'd imagine, yeah, with, with the internet and, and globalization and everything, it's a lot more developed now, but I'd say as you're saying, like it's probably still a mix of, of people still able to, you know, use their Irish context as well as the more formalized ways such as college DJ and fingless. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, we just mentioned there Fergus Hopper, like he was, some players were, even by the 1990s, some players were going by um, newspaper clippings and um, Richie Grant, when he moved to America, he said the, the coach just rang him up and asked him, well, are you any good? And he says, yeah, I am, kind of thing. You know, there was no no YouTube or no footage or anything. So I, I, he told me as well that they, they would never take a chance on a player like that now. They'd have to have seen him and, and watched him. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot more developed now, I imagine, yeah. Thanks, Connor. Um, Mick, I just wanted to ask you one as well, if I get a chance. Um, you were mentioned there about the famous or infamous Ernie Crawford going to the Olympics. So in my research, I, he, was in the, he was in the squad, obviously there was that, 
previous there was a probables versus possibles game um, with a few players from Bowes and Shells thrown in. Uh, I kind of read the opposite way that he was included in the squad, but then didn't play because he was from Belfast and they chose basically not to antagonize the IFA. Um, and therefore he went, you know, as a spectator, you know, infamously getting stopped with his handgun for, you know, his peace of mind and all that. <laughs> yeah. And like, like the US team, there, there were triumphs, probables and possibles in, in, in Ireland and, and Ernie Crawford did play for one of those and was officially not picked to, to go to, to, uh, to, to Paris Olympics. However, uh, JJ Keane, who was the ex-GAA player um, and uh, head of the IOC, uh, was proven to be a barrier in terms of signing off on the soccer team. And the, the FAI had to go around the corner um, to their French counterparts and to um, slightly undermine JJ Keane and seek um, a sign off from from the uh, International Olympic Committee. And one of the provisos they had was because the Irish Olympic Committee was a 32 county organization, but the IFA, uh, the FAI or the, the Free State FA was a 26 county organization that we, they had to have a name of someone from the North of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So that's, Ernie Crawford's name was submitted and uh, from the from the records I have, he actually there was, a, there was a practice game in Paris that he played in, and one of the other players was actually Billy Otto from South Africa who played for Bohemians as well. Yeah, uh, he was in the probable, probable possible uh, game as well. Billy was. Yeah, he was in. Yeah, but it, he he was he was he was found not to be Irish yeah. <laughs> because he was born in in, um, in 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 South Africa, so. Uh, he only moved there four years earlier. <laughs> yeah, so um, so the, the the view was that yes, he, he, he Ernie Crawford was submitted as a paper name, um, and was was not was there to as a supporter, um, and he knew that. But however, for the sake of paperwork, uh, there wasn't there was a, somebody from the north of Ireland submitted on the spot. Cool. Thanks, Mike. I think uh, Chuck Carlson, who is uh, got his hand up in the virtual room and uh, just saw on social media that uh, Chuck is now an official club historian, one of the few in the United States. So, Chuck, please. Thank you, the three of you. This has been great, um, Peter. The club that or, um, the club that I am now the historian of is in Chicago. Um, so the story of Peter Peel is fascinating. Um, to me. I actually have a presentation tonight. I'm figuring out how I can uh, add a little bit more uh, about Peel into that presentation. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating that you mentioned was that he fought the influence of the KKK in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and the KKK was incredibly influential in Chicago in the early 20s, but faded out by the mid 20s. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you can expand at all on that. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't actually part of my stu my study, but I I came across um, Peel's civic uh, involvement in in Chicago, and I, I I'd imagined that that he was you know uh, just sticking with the Irish community, but his prominence led him to there was an establishment of a committee by the governor, um, 
which was to uh, to counteract the uh, the growth of the KKK in Chicago. And what they were what they oh, did was that they put they publicized the names of KKK um, supporters. You probably know all of this. Um, but at, at, at fear of retribution, and there was retribution from these KK people, so it was quite a brave thing to do. However, the it, it was um, it was the, I think it was the Chicago Chronicle, um, which was leading the campaign, and uh, they had a, uh, a an Irish ownership, um, and were very pro Irish at the time as part of their um, their editorial decision making at the time. And um, so, um, yeah, that's how we got involved in it. Um, and they spoke out about it and went to committee meetings and was part of that. They publicly put an ad in and named themselves. We are against you. And they start naming them. Great. Thank you. I'm going to jump in and ask Padraig a question. How, how do you get the, the Belfast Celtic story to the stage and what does that look like? I'm curious. Uh, well, we did um, we did a full stage production of based around the book, which I, 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 I wrote back turn of the century called Paradise Lost and Found. It's not available from any good uh, bookstore because it's, it's, it's out of print now. So, but I do, do have a copy here. Um, it, 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 I suppose there was an, an element of, of luck about it I had been fortunate enough to have uh, spoken to many of the, the old players who were still alive. You heard a clip of uh, Harry Walker, who was the, the team captain. Uh, and, and so like I was able to uh, mine a rich source of information in, in writing that book. And then I got together with a, a couple of um, actors in Belfast and, and we, we wrote that together. Um, we were very fortunate in that uh, we went to Celtic Park in Scotland and we got the, the crowd. We were given eight minutes uh, by, uh, by Celtic to go out onto the pitch at half time and get the crowd uh, to sing songs that we put up on a big screen. And there was a you know, there was a choir master out in the middle of the pitch who, who coached them and they, we got them to do all the chants we need to, to sing about Belfast Celtic rather than Glasgow Celtic. So once we had that, uh, we were able to, to weave that into the soundtrack for the play, which ran for a month. It was called Paradise. And uh, it really was, it was a very special, very special event. We had Jimmy Jones and a few of the other players came along to one of the the nights uh, where the audience was allowed to ask questions, and uh, we had we had one uh, member of the audience who complained that the actor playing Jimmy Jones didn't look like Jimmy Jones, who was whatever age he was at the time, seventy or whatever, and and that's why he he didn't he, you know he didn't kind of he didn't really get it, but. That was one of the sort of the bizarre episodes, but it, it was a fantastic experience to see how on stage uh, the director and the, the set designer was able to create what looked like a packed stadium. And I mean, there were only 
from memory, I think there were maybe eight or nine actors, and obviously some did multi-rolling, but I mean they weren't they weren't that good. And then at the very end, all the actors came out on stage dressed in uh, the old style Celtic uh, shirts, and the um, the musician Neil Martin, who's a very famous musician here, who plays the cello and the Ilan pipes, he had composed this beautiful piece of music, which wove in. Uh, the pipes and the sound of the audience, uh, or sorry, the, the spectators at Celtic Park singing the name Celtic, Celtic, Belfast, Celtic. I mean, it really was just beautiful. And uh, they also got them to sing, Will You Know, Come Back Again, which is, uh, you know, the Scottish, Scottish song, but it, it has two meanings. And when Celtic, Belfast Celtic, uh, reassembled in 1952 under the guise of another name and they played Glasgow Celtic in Belfast in a charity match and the crowd the capacity crowd uh, spontaneously began to sing Will You Know Come Back Again uh, and which could mean please come back and others saying don't come back you know stay stay just stay in in, in in the minds of people who loved you so much. If you'd like it to come to America, give me a give me a shout and we'll see what we can do. All right. Yeah. Transatlantic production. I love it. Well, you never know. You never know. But it it was it, I tell you, it was a magical time to 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 watch something like that be transferred onto onto a stage and to to have a presentation of the critical moments. I mean, we did, uh, and I don't wish to bore you, but I did another play with the, the character Lish Scott, the manager, who was a Protestant, a Presbyterian, former Liverpool goalkeeper. His best friend was a man called Morgan, who was the Catholic trainer of Linfield. And they were the Protestant team, but yet they were the best of friends. And we staged that in Linfield's uh, Windsor Park one night, uh, back in the old days when there was the old ground. And we the, the venue that we used was a social club, which had a long window, maybe 30 or 40 meters, maybe. And it overlooked the ground. And we put on the windows uh, Celtic flags and Linfield flags to blot out the ground. And then as the evening progressed and the actors who moved among the crowd, there were just two of them playing Lish uh, and, 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 and Jerry. Uh, part of what they did was to go to the window and take down one of the flags. And Linfield were really helpful because it was the first time that anything to do with Belfast Celtic had been back in the ground since the riot of 1948. But as the flags were taken down, Linfield had turned on some of the spots, spotlights at the far end of the ground. And this was a win winter's evening. And so the lights of the ground just bled into the, the venue. I mean, it was, it was really stunning. So we could do that, but that's, that, that's just two actors. But it, was, it really was, it was a, a, a marvelous, marvelous to be part of it. Anyone else, would they uh, like to uh, ask a question? We're coming up on full time here. We're actually in extra time in the 93rd minute. 
Um, well, it's five. Remember, there were five periods of extra time I mentioned in that right, game. 49 minutes we have. I was yeah. paying attention. <laughs> if I could just quickly ask, Porik, if, if possible, if I could get your maybe contact details, because um, as is the lot of any sports historian, I keep getting people contacting me saying, oh, you know, my grandfather, my great grandfather played for such and such. Um, and a family friend has basically told me the story of his grandfather who I've found recent reports, he was on trial and played a few matches for Belfast Celtic. Uh, he was a personal friend of Oscar Trainer. He yep. trainer had him uh, basically a couple of trials games. He played some Belfast Cup games for them. I'm just doing a bit of research on him. So I'd love to maybe well, send him a few bits of Listen, pieces. Yes, of course we can, we can link up. And I should say, Jerry, uh, one of the things we've been doing as a society, the, the Belfast Celtic Society, is we've been trying to bring the story while, while we have a, a little museum in Belfast, which is closed at the moment, but we've been trying to bring the story of the club to other football grounds around mm. the place we've been. We've been in Lurgan. We've been in, up at Derry City. We've been at Drogheda. And we would like to come to Dublin to have a kind of an evening of sharing stories. And trust me, they are absolutely brilliant because, you know, we trade stories. We trade insults. The time we beat you 7-0 and the time you beat us 8-0. <laughs> But it, it really does it really does work. It's it's kind of a, a wonderful expression, a way of keeping the oral history alive. And I would cite the evening that we had uh, at at Linfield when we went along the first time, and they were very nervous about it. And we had you know there was a kind of a trial run, and the the man playing Lish Scott, who was uh, he swore like a trooper, and in fact the actor Lawler Roddy. Connor, I think he went to America on a on a football scholarship initially when he studied psychology somewhere. But that's by the by. But during that, in came the 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 manager of the team during the performance. Uh, he was he was out training the club, but David Jeffrey came into the venue, and uh, Lish Scott, the actor, saw him coming in, and he lit into him. He tore strips off him. Asked him who the hell who the f was he. What was he doing coming in at this time? Training had begun, it, it, you know, and he really kind of, he, he just brought a little bit extra to it. And of course, the Linfield people just loved it. And needless to say, we were invited back again. But it was, it's something we would love to do with, with other clubs around the Just come along, share our story with your club and, and your fans. But obviously, we'll have to wait till the lockdown. Well, Park, I'm sure you'd be welcome in Daily Mount. And I okay. mean, there's a great story of the, the 45 Intercity Cup final and Mick, o, Mick o Flanagan and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we'll hook up afterwards. Yeah, great. All right, folks, okay. I think uh, I, I think we'll call it uh, for today. A, a, a very uh, you know special thank you to our three panelists uh, from Emerald Island. Thank you very much. And our Irish guests, uh, thank you for joining the Society for American Soccer History. Let's, uh, let's do it again sometime. Yes, absolutely. We have many other stories to tell. Thank you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>